0: Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green and I'm your host. Today we've got a special edition sort of of the podcast and that's because a really good friend of mine asked me a question yesterday. She'd been reading a book and a passage from uh, 1 Corinthians came up and so she wanted to know about the context of that. What does it mean? Does it it mean um, something I don't want it to mean, (laughs) frankly? So what I want to do is, is I want to talk about that a little bit. I want to talk about what's actually going on there and, and how to interpret that whole passage. And so what it is, it's first Corinthians seven, and it's um, specifically what she was asking about was just one part of a verse. And that is the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And so what that would seem to indicate is, is that whatever the husband wants, the husband can have, um, and that the wife can never say no to sex. If, even if she's sick or whatever, she can't say no. And so what I want to talk about is is how to think through that. But you can't think through it alone, really. You really need to think through it with your spouse. You need to pray through it with your spouse. And you need to really take some time to discuss that and to, to say, how, how are we going to live this out? How are we going to play this out in our lives? And so I want to read the context. So it's about five verses. Just take a minute. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, whoever Paul's responding to, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each wife woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what is it Paul's talking about there? Where where does he get this idea? Well, he's not speaking into a vacuum, actually. I mean, my mind is, and and people who've known me for a long time will laugh at this. And and what I'm going to tell you is that it all goes back to Genesis. If we want to understand the nature of the marital relationship, if we want to understand anything about that at all, we go back to right at the beginning, because you remember what's happened here, right? So so everything has been created. Well, not quite everything. We'll see the creation of one other thing in the passage that I'm going to read to. So Genesis 2 tells us about the beautiful um, garden that they're placed in and, and tells about the creation of all things. And then... God gives the command about the tree of knowledge of good and evil that's in the center, that's in the garden, that you're not supposed to eat of it, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And then after that, right after we find out about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the next thing is really interesting, and I'm not sure that I've ever really noticed it this way before, but but after we hear about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the next thing that happens is God says, it's not good that the man should be alone. So there's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the very next thing God says is, there's something that's not good in my creation. And he has said up till then that everything was very good. But it's not perfect yet. Because something is not good. And that's for the man to be alone. He said, I'll make a helper fit for him. And so then it says, out of the ground, God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And in that process of calling them something and naming them something, it's it's an extension of the dominion God gives over the the uh, rest of creation to um, to humanity. And so the, the first act of dominion is naming. It. What will you call it? So God's sort of uh, given him Adam part of the responsibility. So he's sharing something. He created it, but now he's giving Adam dominion over it. And he's passing on that authority by allowing Adam to name all these animals. And so what happens is they parade before him, and he calls it whatever it is. It's a tiger, it's a lion, it's a cow, it's a cat, it's a dog. <clears throat> that wouldn't have been the exact word because it would have been Hebrew. But he names all these, and then at the end of it it says, But for Adam, there was no, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. There's something really interesting in all that. There's something about Eve, in fact, who she will be called later because she's the mother of all. There's something different about Eve from literally every other thing in cre- being in creation, right? Because prior to this, we had been told about the creation of Adam and, and, and God picks up some of the dust from the earth, fashions it into a man. And here, what it it says then is that he formed all the beasts out of the ground in the same way, but not Eve. She's different because what she formed out of, she's formed out of man. So there's something profound in thinking about the idea of what does it mean that they are one flesh because they're literally one flesh. God didn't create two flesh. He created one. And then out of that one, he created her. There's something profound to think about in that creation. It it says something about the complementarity of man and woman, for one thing. But it says something really profound about this whole idea of being one flesh. There's sort of the reunification of Adam with himself. There's, There's two things, but really there's only one thing. But that one thing is intended for one purpose. It's intended for that marital purpose. So there's something within marriage that's unique in everything else in the world because the creation of Eve is unique. And so when you talk about me not having authority over my body within the marriage that my spouse does... It goes back and relates to this, because we are to be one flesh, literally, which doesn't mean that one can exercise dominion over the other and have their way if the other person objects, if the other person's not in the mood, if the other person doesn't feel well, whatever. You you can't rape in marriage. That's not an option, and and that's because we are intended to become one flesh. And there's a power in marriage because there's a power in this idea of one flesh. Be careful who you marry, because when you do, then you you don't do that lightly. It's not something that should be taken lightly. It's something that should be a profound statement of, I don't just want to be with this person the rest of my life. I, I want to become a unity with this person and unity in body, unity in mind, unity in heart. And so you're taking on an enormous obligation, but the grandest and most glorious journey of a lifetime. It, it, there's, a, there's a good intentionality in marriage that God has provided such an institution for us because it relates back to our own creation. And so you see and you hear the joy that Adam takes. He is watched as all these animals have been paraded by him and he didn't find anything that that excited him. And then suddenly God brings the woman to him and and it's, oh, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so there's this this restoration of unity that's intended in marriage. And, And the first place it begins is the separation from your parents. And so that's a that's a profound separation because well you were taken out of your mother. So there's there's a there's a radical breach that that comes with you you were attached literally by an umbilical cord to your mother. And that first had to be severed and you had to become an individual and individuated from your mother from whom you had a symbiotic relationship while you were in the womb. And you would have been in the womb had it not been for your father. And so they took responsibility for you. And in, in Jewish law, if you know what of our mitzvah is, it's at 13 when when, he is de- when the son is declared to be a man. And what does he do in that? What is the ceremony for that? Well, he goes in front of the congregation in the synagogue and he reads in Hebrew a portion of the law. And it's an exciting day for this 13 year old Let's call him a young man because he is now a man under Jewish law. He is, uh, has all the rights, privileges, and obligations in the synagogue. So it's a wonderful thing because it's a rite of passage. But the one thing that most people don't think about is it's actually two rites of passage that have happened there. Because up until that day, when the son stands and reads from the law in Hebrew in the congregation, the father is relieved of a responsibility and an obligation because until that moment, all the sins committed by that boy belong to the father because the father has not, there's a a defect somehow in that relationship. There's a defect in the teaching to the son. If the son sins, then that sin goes back to the father. But after that boy stands and reads in the congregation from the law, now he can be recognized as someone who can read the law for himself and is now responsible for the law himself. So the the sins this person will commit are no longer the father's sins. They're no longer attributed to him or to them. They are now his own. Becoming a young man in Judaism is a profound thing because now you are separated one degree further from your father. And then at marriage, you're separated one degree further. And that separation is a radical breach. The Lord says you're to leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife and become one flesh with your wife. So you've been one flesh with your mother when you were in the womb. Then that was severed through the umbilical cord. And now you're to become one flesh with your wife. And that's a physical thing. Yes, absolutely, gloriously so. But it's also more than that. It's emotional, it's spiritual, it's mental. We're to become one flesh. We are to be sort of indistinguishable in some ways from one another. It doesn't mean that my wife has to become like me or I have to become like my wife. But what it does mean is there's a give and take. In all that that forms us into a new kind of person, and we then together in marriage become a different kind of an entity. So it's the process of all that that this passage from First Corinthians has to do with it. It's that it's the it's sort of, you know, most of your life you work towards individualization, individuating yourself from your parents, your peers, the whoever's who have controlled or whatever you want to whatever word you want to use. It, you move. Through that process, and then when you marry, then there's a different process that's supposed to occur, and that's the coming together of two to make one. That's a difficult process. I'm never going to tell you that it's anything other than a difficult process, and it requires a lot of trial and error. It requires a lot of talking with one another, but it also requires talking with others. But in becoming one flesh, what I do then is Paul is going to tell me later that what I need to do is to love my wife, like I love myself. And so if I love my wife, like I love myself, then there's two things, right? I'm going to respect her. I'm going to honor her. And I'm not going to force my um, pleasurable desires on her all the time, just because I happen to always want that. If my wife doesn't always want that, then then we need to come to, to an agreement, where we are one. Maybe part of the reason she doesn't is something to do with me. There's other things that need to be fixed and talked about. We need to deal with those things. But likewise, we're told not to deny one another those things. So there's got to be in the making of one flesh, there's got to be a lot of give and take. And there's got to be a lot of honesty. There's got to be a lot of things that we talk about. There's there's seasons of life, in fact, that have to be dealt with. That one may have responsibilities more than the other, and that that we need to care for one another, providing for one another's needs. And some of those needs are sexual needs, and that's exactly what Paul's saying. He said, Look, I wish everybody could be like me. And, And we believe that to mean that he was single. And so he said, I wish everybody could be like that, but I understand that everybody's not made that way or wired that way. He tells widows, in fact, at some point, look, you know, it'd be better if you stayed single, but if you're burning with passion, then marry somebody in order that you're not committing um, sexual sexual immorality and sin. And so there's this realization that we're made as sexual beings at some level. We shouldn't control our lives, Certainly. And we need to be able to control our passions. You know, this is the the example or the, uh, the analog people use all the time has to do with fire, especially if you're teaching to teenagers. I've heard this used a million times with teenagers that that there's a good thing with fire. If I want to heat my house with fire, I build a fire in the fireplace. And that's a good thing and it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. People actually use that as screensavers and they'll sit there and look at it for hours and I don't get it, but they do. So it's a wonderful thing. It's a comforting thing. But if that fire comes out of the fireplace, it's a whole different feeling. And so there are limits prescribed around that. And and the limitations that Paul would, would put here are the encouragement to one another to say that, no, we are not our own. We are also part of one another. And so if you read the Song of Solomon, um, you'll hear the refrain over and over again of, I am my beloveds and he is mine. And so when we look at this this thing that Paul writes about, you don't have authority over your own body, your spouse does, then that feels really confining. But not if you think about it in the terms that I just said from the Song of Solomon. I am my beloveds and he is mine. If we keep that thought in mind, that train of thought in mind, then we'll think very differently about these words that Paul speaks here. I want to go to something that we use during um, weddings frequently, and it's something that people, women particularly, can kind of tend to object to, but, but I want to read this, and it's from Ephesians 5, and it begins with verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's a, the, when it begins that with <clears throat> wives, submit to your own husbands, that's offensive language. And if that's all you hear, then you miss this beautiful picture that Paul paints of the relationship between husband and wife as that of the body of Christ, being the wife, to the church. Which, well, I mean, the body of Christ to Christ himself. And so the tender, loving kindness that God has for the church, the forbearance that he shows the church whenever it's in error, whenever it's in sin, whenever. It's falling apart. He still loves that church. You see that in Hosea. You see um, the Lord tells the prophet to marry a woman and then the woman becomes adulterous and leaves. And then later he says, go back and remarry that wife. Go back and reclaim her for yourself. That's the picture of the way God loves the church. She's adulterous and goes astray. And yet God says, go marry her. I want people to see a picture of how I love. And then ultimately he sends Jesus to die on the cross for those who were his enemies, those who mock him, those who spit on him, those who beat on beat him, those who, who mockingly call him king of the Jews, who put a crown of thorns on his head, who beat him with rods, who spit on him. And even at the end, his prayer, is father forgive them, they know not what they do. He didn't die and say, I'm dying for everybody but you. No, he loved those and prayed for those who treated him that way. And we as husbands have to love our wives in the same way that that Christ loves his body, the church, because when we are one flesh, we are one body. Her body is my body and my body is her body. And so we have that responsibility to one another, but we have to take that responsibility from the sense of I am my beloved's and he or she is mine. And so we work these things out. We honor one another with our bodies by not presenting them to another, but presenting them to one another in love because we want to serve one another. And one of the ways we serve one another is sex. It's meant for more than just procreation. It's meant that we can serve one another and express our loves fully with one another within the bounds of that marriage covenant. I hope you find this helpful. Again, I'm John Green, and you've been listening to Faith seeking understanding.